Hello world and welcome back to Real Talk with Rajan when nothing's off limits. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with me and I appreciate that. I am your host, Rajan Lewis. Now, here on Real Talk with Rajan, everything's debatable. So on any given week, we can we can be discussing anything from sports to music to politics. I also want to take this opportunity to shout out to our special sponsors. Thank you to signstosee.org or signstosee.com. If you are looking for anything, custom designs, any businesses, you got a political campaign that you're trying to run, whatever it is, make sure you go to www.signstosee.com to get your custom item needs done, taken care of. And if you are looking for a career, looking into a career in uh, cybersecurity, you want to go to www.cyberprepu.com. To get started with them as well I want to thank you all so much for watching This week For those who are new to the show Real Talk Rajan has a, a goal of shining a light On the great things that are happening right here in the low country Sorry My phone rang in the middle of my show Which never happens You know I have a goal of shining a light On the great things that are happening right here in the low country And today my special guest is none other than Mr. Ben Hogue Thank you so much for joining me sir Rajan, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, um, we got a lot of conversations in uh, the criminal justice realm that we, we got to have. It's about Absolutely. Time. Absolutely. So please, uh, just to get, just by way of, of background, please introduce yourself to the audience. Let them know who you are, sir. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an attorney. My name is Ben Pogue. Um, I'm running for Ninth Circuit Solicitor. So that's actually all of Charleston County and all of Berkeley County. It's, oh, it's wow. actually the largest statewide race in South Carolina because there's about 600 to 650,000 residents in Berkeley and Charleston County. And the solicitor is really, it's just like district attorney everywhere else, which is a problem that I'd like to discuss because people don't know what it is. If you say solicitor, if you talk about district attorneys then people understand that that's the person who's in charge of local criminal justice policy. Certainly it's the person in charge of making sure that we have racial equity in our criminal justice system and the prosecution of all serious crimes. Although the, jurisdiction of the solicitor goes even beyond that uh, to have some effect on lower level crimes as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been an attorney since 2009. My previous career was as a meteorologist. I was the morning meteorologist over on Channel 2. I used to be Storm Team 2 meteorologist Ben Pogue. Oh! <laughs> so uh, it, there literally are no other people in the nation who have gone from being a television weatherman to uh to be a, an attorney, but it's um, it, it's a you know it, it's really just all about keeping people safe and helping your neighbor, and those are two professions that I, I'm really happy that I've gotten a chance to do that. In. Wow! So okay, so now we, we really got to go back now. So oh, yeah. where are you where are you where are you originally from? I grew up in the Washington D.C. area, uh, just over the Potomac on the Virginia side. Um, grew up in the shadow of Mount Vernon. George Washington's home. Actually, you know, he had a lot of land and he had a lot of enslaved Africans on his land. And I'm glad that that's something that we're talking about now, too. It, it's about time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was a different different kind of environment to grow up up there. I came down here after college and after my first wife went to medical school in 1995, I got down here. So I've been down here for 25 years. Hmm. And um, my Current wife is Nina Sossman Pogue. We're really close friends with both of our uh, our exes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have this large blended family, um, and a lot of folks know Nina Sossman from back in the news. That's my wife. Yes. Yeah, she became a vice president of a software company, Benefit Focus, and then she now is an author. So she uh, writes books and speaks around the country. And we're both trying to do our share to make people uh, make people's lives a little bit richer. 
Wow. So, okay, I knew that you were married to Nina Sossaman. And I put, I saw yeah. her picture and I was like, that's Nina Sossaman from the news. Yeah. Yes. Like, she's not on the news anymore. Whoa. She, she's like the president of a, a benefit focus? She was a vice president for benefit focus. She left last year, last year to really focus on uh, talking about resilience to corporations, to uh, all kinds of groups, public speaking, and to write her first book, which came out last year. She just finished her first draft of her second book, which is really all about resilience. It's about um, seeing the difficult times in your life as just one chapter of a larger story and understanding that those difficult experiences can empower you and give you new tools to work with as you journey forward into your future. Okay. And what's that book called? Uh, her first book is This Is Not The End. And I'm not sure about the title of the second book because I think she's still working on it. But yeah, you can get it on Amazon. It's This Is Not The End. This in big, bold letters. Because, you know, we all sort of have that this in life that we've got to go through. But, yeah. you know, if we have a resilient attitude toward it and look at it from a different perspective, then this can be something that sort of superpowers our skills in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Amazing. John, I'm a fan of my wife. I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm. There you go. See, there you go. We got. We got to uplift the ladies, man. Shout out to that's the ladies. Right. Shout out to the yes. ladies. Yes. So, so you're from Washington D.C. So, what brought you to Low Country? Well, um, after undergraduate, my first wife and I. Well, I was living in Richmond with her. She was going to the Medical College of Virginia. She's a pediatrician. She's a mm -hmm. phenomenal pediatrician. Her name is Zoe Kleckner or Pogue Sod. She's got all these names now, like that. <laughs> blended family uh, people do. So she owns uh, Low Country Pediatrics, which is out in Goose Creek. Uh, just she's a phenomenal woman, a phenomenal mother, and I'll have her in my, in my life here too. Um, but we were in Richmond together while she was in medical school. Uh -huh. uh, and I was, after my undergraduate degree, I was taking some additional courses in broadcast journalism and uh, working on the side and uh, working at a radio station, delivering pizzas in the evening, doing volunteer work when I could. Uh, so a lot, a lot of hours in the day there. And yeah. Um, yeah, when she graduated from medical school, she matched down here at MUSC and okay. we end up down here. But um yeah, Richmond is a whole bunch of other stories. Uh, yeah, feel free to get into that too. There's, you know, there's a lot going on in Richmond back in the '90s. And yeah, and actually, you know, yeah, Rajon, my experience in Richmond was one of the things that sort of helped shape where I am now. Um, while I was being a pizza delivery guy late at night one night, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I got I mugged at gunpoint, and wow, comes out from behind a car, holds a gun up to your head, and. Uh, I got down on my knees, put the gun up to the back of my head, and, uh, you know, it was a, a bit of a traumatic experience. And immediately after that, when he ran down the street to get in the car, uh, the police came to the scene. One of the first things that they told me is, look, we're probably never going to get this guy. And, and that was sort of the first time um, that my faith was shaken in the criminal justice system to have that kind of first perspective from from police officers to somebody who'd just been involved in uh, violent crime, muggings yeah. and violent crime. Um, so, you know, unfortunately it hasn't gotten that much better now. Now we look at a criminal justice system that a lot of folks, we just had the report from Charleston Forum come out, uh, came out, people just don't have a whole lot of faith in it. And yeah. if there's one statistic that really is a, 
a glaring statistic. It's that about half nationwide, about half of violent crimes are not reported because mm. people just don't have a whole lot of faith in the system. Yeah. We've got a great system, but the way it is now, people don't trust that it's going to work the right way. And that's basically what I'm trying to fix. Absolutely. So there's a lot for us to dig in there. Um, oh, yeah. I know. There's a lot for us to dig into there. I wanted to ask one more question about the news before I moved into, into, the, into the lawyer. Though. Yeah, sure. So how do you become a weatherman? Well, because people, don't, people don't go to like you don't go yeah. to broadcast journalism school to become a weatherman, like to become an yeah. anchor. Right. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, th there are a number of different paths you can take. For me, yeah. it was. So I got my undergraduate degree from College of William Mary in psychology, and uh, I really still use that degree every day. And then after that, I wanted to do graduate work. William and Mary didn't have a broadcast journalism program. Uh, I was originally pre-med. That didn't really work out. I didn't okay. like chemistry enough. But uh, once we got to Richmond, Virginia Commonwealth University had a broadcast journalism uh, course load there. So that's what I was taking. Got an internship at a local station. Uh, wanted to do sports initially because I love sports. Everybody I love loves sports, sports, right? But I also love the weather. And by the time yeah. I got down here to Charleston, um, I sort of used my background when I was in school as a kid in high school. Uh, my parents lived real close to the water. We had a little sailboat, so I'd go, you know, sailing in a sunfish, learned a whole lot about the weather there, took the Coast Guard auxiliary course in weather, so I had at least some sort of background. But I got a job running the audio board early in the morning at Channel 2. So 5 o'clock in the morning, I was there. And every day after, I, I worked my eight-hour shift, and then I'd go hang out with Rob Fowler and with other reporters in the newsroom. And so he sort of tutored me about the weather to start off with for about a year and a half. Then I got into a uh, correspondence course program at Mississippi State University, and they actually have a broadcast meteorology program. Ended up studying that for three years, and I was on the air and broadcast meteorologist. There you go. Wow. That's pretty – that's really interesting. I had yeah. – like, I had no idea there were so many courses to be a weatherman, especially yeah, when you watch the movie. Uh, what movie was it? We, I know all the weather movies. What's the movie about the guy that, that was the weatherman, and then he talks about the fact that it's like – like weather, like weather is 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 an exact isn't isn't an exact science. People like throw stuff at it when they walk down the street. After, there's like the day after tomorrow where everything gets super cold. There's that, and it's not an exact science. And they're looking at all the models, and it's not. But it's, it's supposed to be a funny one. It's like Will Ferrell or Jim Carrey. Oh, or somebody said. oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, oh, hey, there's thunderstorms right out there, which is really <laughs> super cool for me. I'm in downtown Charleston, so it's hard for me not to look out the window. Um, yeah, there's uh, well, there's. Gosh, there's the weatherman with Nicolas Cage. There's Grant that's Hardy. the one. That's the oh, one. It's yeah, weatherman yeah. with Nicolas Cage. Okay, cool. cool, cool. I know. All right. I know all of them. So, so now that we've had fun, yeah. <laughs> now that we've had fun, let's talk about the law. All right. So, so, um, the position of solicitor, right? So, yeah. one, you go from it's not Anchorman, baby. Good try though. Thank you so much. Right. My wife tried so, to. She, it's, right. it's he 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 had he, we got we figured that one out. All right. Um there's another good one. Brick Tamlin is the weatherman. Yes, Brick Tamlin is hysterical. Yeah, Why are we yelling? Um, <laughs> um okay, so so let's yeah, talk weather about the law. Right. There's <laughs> no there's no smooth transition there. Um yeah. what what is what was your pull? Because you, you talked about you know going having that traumatic experience where you you know had you yeah. were at gunpoint. Uh, what made you decide, I want to go into law? 
Uh, yeah, you know, it's it was sort of it started with the weather itself. So um, I was here in Charleston for eight and a half years doing the weather. Um, and then I got a job up in Charlotte and I was actually commuting back and forth between Charlotte and here. Um, so while I was up in Charlotte, 2005, Katrina hit and I, I knew some of those meteorologists down in New Orleans. I'd see them repeatedly at conferences, uh, hurricane conferences all over the place, weather conferences. And one of the things that we had talked about consistently was that folks down there just were not ready. Um, and when we say folks weren't ready, we really mean that the government had not provided, provided the infrastructure that it really needed to keep people safe, keep regular folks safe. So uh, I was a little bit disillusioned by that. And I went to my news director up in Charlotte and said, hey, look, I'd like to go down with the Red Cross volunteer. I can take a camera, any of that. They said, no, you know, we don't know how long you'd be gone. Um, can't take really a leave of absence. And I said, well, I'm going anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I hooked back up with the Red Cross in Charleston. They got me down to Lufkin, Texas. Um, I started out in Austin, Texas. Me and some other guys from the Red Cross hijacked a truck truck full of Red Cross supplies to go to Lufkin because nothing was getting there. So we yeah. sort of did it on our own. We show up with a truck full of snacks and food and uh, underwear and all kinds of you know toiletries, things like that. We show up, we're like, hey, we got this truck full of stuff for you. They said, you're our relief, we're out of here, because they had been there for a month with no relief, and suddenly within 15 minutes, I went from driving a truck to now I'm running a shelter. Oh, so wow. I'm running this shelter in Lufkin, Texas. And Lufkin has about 30,000 people normally, but it had ballooned to 90,000 refugees, mainly from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And I, my shelter was built for 300. We had 650 people there, about a quarter of the population did not speak English as their first language. I end up translating for the FEMA representative who shows up four hours a week. Wow. Uh, and just folks, they were not represented. They had bigger things going on in their life and they didn't need somebody to tell them what the weather was going to be like anymore. It had already hit. The weather happened to them. Right. So what did they really need? They needed somebody to understand the situation that they were going through, the real life circumstances that they had to deal with. And the FEMA representative certainly didn't do that. Uh, so I came back home from that experience and talked to my wife, I talked to Nina about it. And I said, you know, I think what people need is somebody who's really there for them in their most difficult times. And I think law is the way to go. So came back here, we were so fortunate that the Charleston School of Law was there for us, so I didn't have to commute anymore. All right. Um, yeah, it was a great education, great experience, and I love that place. And uh, yeah, I got my um, degree and passed the bar in 2009 and uh, been practicing law ever since. A lot of courtroom time, which is wonderful. I love trials. Um, love to do mediations even better. That's when people are about to go to trial, but if you can bring together people for solutions, that's that's really a better way to do it if you can. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so when did you finish your law law school degree? Yeah, two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Degree. So, so 11, eleven years. Okay, and what positions have you Goes served in? Quick. <laughs> what positions have you served in as as a lawyer in law? So I was in a small firm for most of that time until I moved on to my own firm. Um, uh, practice primarily civil defense litigation. So, a lot of the cases that I was in, uh, I was defending people who had. Uh, caused some sort of injury or something like that. Uh, 
and at other times it was more esoteric things. I defended a large corporation that was being sued for about a million dollars, uh, mm-hmm. defended DUI clients. Um, but you know, trial is trial experience is it's really critical. It's it's about connecting with jurors. It's about talking to people. It's about really finding out who your client is and what their needs are and what brought them to that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that's something that we, we miss a little bit in, um, in the law. We, we, we get so caught up in what our own agendas are that we really uh, sometimes can lose focus on our clients. The, the great lawyers really focus on their clients. They focus on meeting the needs of the people who need them the most. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So that, now that we've established your, your role in law, um, let's let's talk about the solicitor's office, right? Yeah. Um, that's the that's the that's the position, like you said, ninth ninth district um, ninth circuit solicitor. Yeah. So ninth circuit our solicitor. team is broken up into judicial circuits. Um, so most of uh, all of them really are multi county circuits. So um, that means that every county has its own solicitor's office and. Or, for these two counties of Berkeley and Charleston County, the solicitor has an office up in Monk's Corner and, that, and uh, also has an office down here in Charleston. You've got a staff combined of about 40 attorneys from the Ninth Circuit. Um, and you prosecute, decide what you're going to do with uh, criminal cases that come on in. So in the criminal justice process, there's really the law enforcement side. And then there's the justice side. And then there, the last part of the equation is the carceral side or incarceration prisons jail and uh, for us probation uh, so you know, that's all part of the same system but it's, yeah. it's really sort of segmented um the solicitor is is the elected official though in that entire mix and, and sheriffs as well and my friend kristen graziano is running for charleston county sheriff um i'm a big supporter of hers i think we could use some changes in, in that department as well um, but ideally, all these offices work together. But the most critical part of that equation really is solicitor, because it's where the most discretion is. It's where one individual has the most decision-making power in terms of who is charged with what, in terms of how the investigations go, and ultimately in terms of designing how we're going to either choose to imprison people, choose to put people in jail, or choose to have diversion programs that are alternatives to incarceration, and to what degree we're really going to invest in those kinds of things. So uh, more than anything, the solicitor and, like I said, district attorney, like everywhere else, is really the primary criminal justice policy leader. And that's something that is really critical to this situation. A policy leader, and this this is a big political idea, right, Rajan, that... We have elected officials for a reason. They're elected because we really need the public to weigh in on what their desire is. Yeah. What, is, what, is what are the needs of the body politic, of all the voters out there, regular folks in communities and neighborhoods, when they're making family decisions, what do they really need to make sure that they have things like economic opportunity, education, resources, transportation, housing, to make sure that their rights are cared for and protected, to make sure that they're treated fairly. Well, criminal justice is one of those areas where we just, we really just have not had fair treatment for everyone. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is that we haven't had voters even be able to weigh in to say, this is what I want the policy to be. We haven't had that choice. I'm literally the first 
Democrat to run for solicitor in the Ninth Circuit in 20 years. Wow. That means that voters have not had a voice for 20 years. Mm. That's really not a good thing. We it's really not. To, no, it's we not. need the public to weigh in. So I, I want to make sure I get to the questions because we have a lot of questions yeah, in the, in sorry, the comment section. So thank you guys so much, so much for uh for giving your questions please continue to send your questions i'm going to try to get to as many of them as i possibly can because i see that you have questions um most of the times i really come up with the questions but i want to know what they think because these are going to people be the people who vote or don't vote for you um so yeah with that being said so one question from the from the audience i saw one that i wanted to make sure i got to uh what is your supervisory experience <laughs> my supervisory well i run my own law firm so that, that's a big part of it. Um, yeah, so I was a partner in the, my previous law firm, which was a small law firm. Um, I'm the partner in my own law firm. Um, but, you know, it's, that's something that uh, having a team of 40, I haven't been there before. I, I certainly, uh, I can't wait to have that experience. Um, yeah. I've worked with nonprofits. I serve on the Board of Trident Literacy Association. I serve on the Board of East Cooper Faith Network, and those are sort of supervisory roles as well. But uh, you know, it's going to be a challenge for anybody uh, stepping into that role. When we want to change so many things, uh, we're going to have to have new, innovative approaches. Absolutely. Uh, any experience in criminal law? Yeah, I'm really a civil defense attorney. And here's one of the issues with, um, with the solicitor's office and why it's so difficult to run for this spot, right? So the way that it works now, besides the fact that solicitor is just a hard term to understand for the, the public, it's not really used in any other part of the United States um, to describe this particular position. It's an old English term, right? Um, but one of the issues is you've got to, once you get past, okay, I'm gonna run for solicitor. Uh, and once you get past the filing fee, which is $7,500, one of the highest filing fees that we've got in the state, then you decide, all right, how am I gonna put together a political campaign? And if you, uh, one of the things as a criminal defense attorney, one of the things you know that you're going to have to do is represent criminal clients as the defending attorney. And guess who you have to do plea deals with? The solicitor's office. Mm. So that means if you're a criminal defense attorney and you want to run for solicitor, then you're running against the person who you've got to negotiate with. And that person has unbelievable discretion. Yeah. So we yeah. hear this all the time when we're talking to other criminal defense attorneys that, you know, hey, Ben, I, I, I can't support you. What's going to happen to my client? Suddenly I'm going to give a donation. The current solicitor is going to see that on some report. And then my client is going to have the charges ramped up. Mm. Um, you know, that's a real fear that we hear, fear of retribution uh, that we hear from other attorneys. And it wouldn't be nearly as bad if the solicitor didn't have so much discretion, didn't have the ability to charge effectively whatever they want. You might have heard the saying, uh, you know, that a district attorney can go to a grand jury, you know, they can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just not a whole lot of pushback through that process. You decide mm -hmm. what cases to try, what cases not to try. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult for somebody in the criminal defense realm to do that. Uh, but I think that what we need more than anything right now is somebody who has an understanding uh, of what the community really needs and has a, at least some sort of background in, in research in understanding what criminal justice reform policies really look like yeah. and how we make them happen, which is the most important part. How do we implement 
policies that end up racially equitable for everybody. Yeah. That is the main problem with the criminal justice system. Uh, we have a question from Mr. Mark Smith. Um, thank you so much for watching, Mark. I don't know who you are, but thank you for watching. Um, how would you change the solicitor's office? Well, really, we've got to prioritize racial equity. Rajan, that's that's the whole deal. So how do we accomplish it? Right now, we, we just we don't have it. And there are a lot of reasons why, but some of them are really, really obvious. One of those top priorities of our, and we, we go through these things uh, right on our website, is we've got to increase the diversity in that office. Right now, we've got 40 attorneys. Uh, an article came out in 2016 from the Post and Courier uh, saying that the, the average number of attorneys out of about 40 who were African-American was two. Well, we've got a community in the Ninth Circuit that's 25 to 30 percent African-American, and we just know that we don't have those kind of experiences getting to the people who are really decision makers. So that's number one. Let's increase the diversity in the solicitor's office. We need to hear black voices, black opinions, and we need to value black lives. They yeah. matter, yes. But they also matter in the decision-making process and making sure that our decision makers have that input, right? So that's number one. Uh, number two is make sure that we are including, not just including, but actively going out and making sure that we get people to serve on juries who are people of color. That's one of the biggest problems that we've got. A study came out fairly recently that talked about, we published it uh, through Twitter, um, talking about how detrimental it can be for a defendant who is African-American if they have a nearly all-white or all-white jury, mm. meaning one or two African-Americans on that jury or zero African-Americans on that jury. Even if that defendant is innocent, they stand a much greater chance of being convicted. And that's not right. We really want to reduce the error rate in our convictions. We don't want to put people in prison simply because we didn't get the right mix of people who could lend their expertise and life experience to the jury. So let's stop actively striking jurors of color. That same article in the 2016 Post and Courier said that in a limited study, and that's important to know, in a limited study, that study found that our current solicitor strikes African-Americans from juries seven times more often than she strikes white jurors. So that's not the diversity that we need. We also need people on juries uh, who are African-American, not just to lend that experience, but to show that this really is a system that welcomes everybody. Um, the jury issue is not solely one that's up to the attorney to say, okay, we're gonna have more black people on juries. You have to look at each in juror individually, but you also have to incentivize them to be there in the first place Right now, people who serve on juries get paid $25 a day, $25 a day. So if you're going to sit on a criminal trial that might take two, three, four weeks, you'll look at how much you're getting paid, 125 bucks a week. If you've got a minimum wage job, you're not getting paid by your employer. Salaried people probably get paid for the time that they serve on jury, but hourly people do not. Mm -hmm. So if you're an hourly wage earner, you're probably paying at least $275 just to serve on the jury, which is a huge impediment, which is why we need folks on county council to make sure that we increase the amount of pay for jurors. And, and you know, we've got some good people running. Kylon Middleton is running. I'm a big backer of hits. Um, but we also need, the third big thing that we need is a racial bias audit of the solicitor's office. It's not about blame. It's not about 
finding out who can we pin responsibility on. It's about finding where our blind spots are in this process. Uh, Rajan, you and I have talked about this. I'm, I'm a white guy, so I, I've grown up in white privilege. So part of my continuing process as an individual is find out where I have had racial bias or privilege in my life that I have not addressed before. Mm-hmm. We need a racial bias audit to have an external organization look really objectively at the things that we're doing to make sure that we know where we have blind spots and how we can remedy them. Yes. Uh, you know, so those are, those are really the big three. Okay. Um, so we do have a question um, that I want to make sure that I, I can a- ask. There's two big questions that, that have come through um, in, in the course of the, the audience um, asking questions. One, they want to know, how would you feel about prosecuting a police officer? Yeah. Rajan, this is the deal with justice. It's supposed to be justice for all. It's supposed to be equal for everybody. So if the offender is a police officer, that person is still a, an offender who we need to prosecute like everybody else. Uh, we, we've got qualified immunity, which I would like to see end for police officers. But when there are instances of excessive force, when there are instances of brutality, that police officer needs to be held accountable. And, and I know a lot of police officers who are really good police officers, yeah. and they want the same thing. When we don't prosecute a police officer and when it just hangs out there as maybe something happened, maybe something didn't, or when a prosecution of a police officer ends up failed, then it diminishes the trust of the entire community. And that is the thing we need to repair. The, the study from the Charleston Forum I mentioned a lot of people just don't have faith in the system. And one of the reasons is because officers come on up, even if they are prosecuted, with, which is rare, then the prosecutions fall through, like in the Michael Slager trial. And then the trust from the community absolutely goes away. And that's the number one thing that we've got to repair. So I want to I want to pause right there because you have been critical of um, of Solicitor Wilson and her treatment of the Michael Slager trial. Would you like to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's uh, it's it's difficult. Certainly, we, we brought out this video, um, and it's difficult for a lot of people to see because, you know, my African American friends say, "Look, this can be traumatizing." And and as somebody who's experienced crime, although nothing like that, nothing remotely close to that, yeah, it is traumatizing. But it also is a a stark revelation to hear video that we only recently heard about that was barely covered at the time and that with a new context is dramatically different. Um, And context is important. A lot of folks have said, what about the context? We're just hearing this one small part. Um, And there's actually, Rajan, there's a a legal tactic that's called removing the sting. And I've defended a lot of people where I needed to remove the sting. Talk about the things that are what we call bad facts to begin with, things that we know our opponent attorney is going to bring up. There's always a but in that sentence though. So we always have a, look, my client has a history of driving under the influence. He went over the other side of the road and he hit a guy head on. That is true. But let me tell you a little bit more about the journey that got him there. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you a little bit more about what is going on in this person so that we really can understand the person who I am defending or advocating for. Context matters, but we we didn't have that in that opening statement. And and I'd encourage everybody to look it up. It's on Google. 
Yeah. Um, we go from he lost his life for his foolishness, which is fraught with uh, uh, a lot of different biases immediately to, but we're here about Michael Slager and his choices. We're here because he went too far. We're here because his sense of authority got the better of him. So there's a huge difference between the way that Walter Scott, who is the victim, who is a black man, is characterized when we say he would not have been killed if he stayed in the car. Although yeah. 2016, same year as Philando Castile yeah. in his car. He wouldn't have been killed if he hadn't run resisted arrest and ultimately saying he died for his foolishness, which is a that's a character judgment yeah. about this individual. And it shuts down any possibility that a jury is going to understand the thought process of an individual who runs in a stressful situation after being stopped for a broken taillight in Charleston, South Carolina, when they know that if additional charges like missing child support are levied against them, they don't know how long they're going to be in jail and they are going to meet a criminal justice system that they also already have no faith in and that they know is racially biased. Mm. None of that was said. Yeah. Instead, we juxtapose Walter Scott's character judgment with Michael Slager simply made a bad choice, simply went too far and the sentence that he let his sense of authority get the better of him really externalizes the cause of what his actions were. Mm. And it removes the intent of the individual, which is what you're trying to prove. Mm. That guy is the murder defendant. You have to prove his intent. And instead, that opening statement really just skirts that entire issue and focuses and on Walter Scott. So just so just to make that point very clear. All right. So for those, I want to make sure that I make it clear because we do have people who watch outside of the city of Charleston, outside yeah. of the state of South Carolina. Even Walter Scott was a gentleman who was who was murdered. Um, he was he was pulled over for a broken tail light by Officer uh, Michael Slager. Um, black man uh, was w w black man was driving the car. White police officer um, w pulled him over. My uh, the officer's name was Michael Slager. Uh, the gentleman uh, Walter Scott gets out of the vehicle and begins running. And Michael Slager uh, pulls out his weapon and fires um, multiple times uh, while the gentleman is running away and kills him. Um, he then reports that uh, that Walter Scott had came after him with something and which, it, thank God, it was videotaped and it was found to be not true. So you're saying for those people to understand, also to understand the solicitor's job is to pr prosecute someone who breaks the law. She was That's prosecuting. Cool, yeah. She was prosecuting Michael Slager, and in her opening statement, in prosecuting Michael Slager, she stated that Walter Scott was killed because of his own foolishness. The line was, he died for his foolishness. And, and I was really, when I saw it the first time, I was hoping, like a lot of attorneys I've spoke to, a lot of attorneys who have gotten in touch with this, because most people never knew about this, right? hoping for something that we call a hook, like... First of all, I don't think you just can't say that sentence. And you, I just don't think that it's fair to characterize Walter Scott, a black victim like that. It does not happen for white victims. It, no. That does not happen for white victims. That's not the way solicitors and district attorneys all around the country treat white victims. Um, but there's no hook that says the defense is going to try and prove this. The defense will say this. This is maybe the case, but 
let's do what you know, what we all have seen in law and order a million times in an opening statement, show the picture of the person. Right. The person who is the victim of yeah. this crime. Yeah. But that's that's not there. That's that's crazy. Like that. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's crazy. It, it's not anything like any opening statement I've ever used with clients that have real deficiencies, a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.40. I mean, there's still something good that you've got to find in your yeah. client. And the victim is not the client, but that is who you are advocating for. Yeah. And this is the biggest trial, in, criminal trial, in Charleston's history, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. With huge overtones in terms of racial equity for our entire nation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's not the right play. So... Thank you. Thank you for answering that. Thank you for, for, you know, being so open and honest about, about that. Um, I want to ask also, um, I have a question from where does bond who I know as Sean Middleton. He says, uh, what have you done so far, which concentrated on racial equity and equality? And I actually have a follow-up question for that, but I'll wait till you answer this question. Yeah. A lot of it is sort of be behind the scenes. This is the first time I've run for a solicitor. Um, you know, what we're trying to do through this campaign is to have these discussions about what it looks like, what racial equity looks like in the, in the system. Um, but what I've done before is really a lifetime of volunteer work. And one of the reasons that uh, I'm doing this instead of more of that, because it, it didn't do enough. Uh, yeah. So Trident Literacy Association works on making sure that we have adults who are educated, adults who fell through the cracks, who are then later educated. And a lot of that has to do with racial equity because the reason that so many people fall through the cracks and disproportionately African-Americans as well as Hispanic, Latino, Latinx individuals is because we have racial inequity there. So we're sort of trying to clean it up on the backside, um, which is not enough. Uh, East Cooper Faith, Work, Faith Network, we still sort of do the same kind of thing there in terms of having both an early education reading program but then also having a division of East Cooper Faith Network that works on repairing people's houses and roofs because uh, housing instability is an issue, but people who have housing also often don't have enough money to literally keep the rain from coming in their house. And then mm -hmm. if the roof fails, then the family fails as well. So as a volunteer, as a nonprofit kind of guy, loads of stuff. I worked in the domestic violence uh, arena in terms of volunteerism and nonprofit work as well. That's another huge area where we have uh, major problems in terms of criminal justice, but there are some disparities there when it comes to domestic violence too. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I'll make sure I'm answering all these questions. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of them. Uh, da, 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 da. There are, I mean, and it's good that there are, because this is the time to ask the questions. Like I said, um, you know, he he took the opportunity to come on the show, and I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, you know, a lot of people yeah. would, they they would probably pick the larger outlets, but you you pick this you know niche audience to come and spread your message and to let people know you know uh, what what you're what you're about. Oh, my follow up question. That's what I wanted to do. So um, your approach. One thing that I've I've known you know because I've known of you before. We've we've met a couple times prior to this interview. Um, is is your approach to um, to dealing with with uh, those juvenile, those diversion programs. What kind yeah. of things have you looked into doing um, that have not been instituted so far by the current solicitor? Well, we, we've got some diversion programs that just 
not enough, not innovative enough, not well-funded enough, not enough people going through those programs. So uh, we, we talk about restorative justice. And, um, you know, some people, most people don't know what restorative justice is. It's really about two things. Restorative justice is about focusing on victims and healing the harm to victims, really focusing on them and making sure that they're integrated in the criminal justice process throughout the entire process, uh, not just leading up to uh, trial in some cases or leading up to a plea deal, but beyond that, even into the realm of rehabilitation to the point at which they wanna do that if they, if they want to. Um, the other big part of restorative justice is incorporating a larger community as decision makers and as partners to diversion programs. So you and I have talked about this and, um, and there are great uh, district attorneys around the country's Commonwealth attorneys uh, in different places. Steve Descano up in Northern Virginia is doing great work here. Uh, uh, Mike Schmidt out in Portland, Oregon, just got elected. He's a big data guy using restorative justice techniques there. Sherry Boston really in Atlanta, uh, working to integrate the community more into these things. but. The restorative justice programs that really work create not just a program within the crim local criminal justice system and office, but they integrate public-private partnerships in the community as well. Mm -hmm. So this is happening in St. Louis. It's happening in, in parts of Tennessee. It's happening all over you know, parts of California, which is frankly much more progressive than we are. Right. So you utilize community groups, nonprofit groups, you get funding uh, from those private and nonprofit entities, and then you couple that sometimes with grants, either from the, from the state or from the federal level, so that you can have community members that really actually have a job that is part of that criminal justice process. And our mentoring yes. community is especially important in this. Um, our mentoring community, as you and Sam Bellamy know, you guys have a better fix on the kids that are at risk at times, even in the criminal justice system does. Yeah. Um, and we all know that every time kids go into the justice system, even with our best intentions, it's not great. And we actually increase the recidivism rate of those individuals, whether they're in a juvenile justice program or whether people do prison time, it doesn't matter. This is, a, this is crazy, Rajan, but right. Prison for anybody actually increases the rate of recidivism. 95% of people are getting out of prison at some point. So if we're not doing something to make sure that we have a public-private partnership, we're not doing something to make sure that those people, those individuals, whether they're juveniles or whether they're adults, when they get back out in the community, have services that they need to succeed, then we're just going to turn them into criminals later on. So, mm. yeah, so restorative justice programs, diversion programs, utilize the community in a lot of different ways you can do that you can have community action teams to watch everything you do but you can also have community action teams to mentor those individuals and have mentoring be part of the sentencing structure mm. for juveniles there's a lot of there's there's loads you can do we're just we're barely scratching the surface yes we I, haven't I wanted, had the motivation to do it i, I wanted to make sure i asked that because i wanted i wanted to highlight that work that you know that you, you're trying to advocate for in terms of transforming the role of the solicitor's office when it comes to actually preparing people to not come back once they get out of yeah, prison. we don't want to know that but if if people are re-enter re society without education and our education and rehabilitation programs in prison have been cut dramatically over the last 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, then we're not preparing them to be better individuals that are more equipped 
to live a righteous life once they get out. So those public-private partnerships, those partnerships between the local justice system, nonprofit groups, and uh, other public organizations, they have to really include a few key areas. First is mentoring, because mm -hmm. we've got to keep the kids safe and our mentoring community can help identify at-risk individuals. The educational system, we've got we've to have a better uh, way to shut down a school-to-prison pipeline and a better mentoring community around there individuals in the actual community where people live, where kids live, to help check on them and, and make mentoring a part of the educational process. Yeah. Transportation, housing, and healthcare. Those are the really big areas that people don't have a safety net for, they don't have resources for. If you come from a poorer community, uh, if you come from a historically redlined community, you don't have those services. If we can bolster those and really integrate not only socioeconomic data, but data about how much a person has in their bank account, what kind of transportation resources they have, educational resources, housing resources, in, incorporate that in how we look at sentencing, how we look at bail and bond, how we look at and manage their rehabilitation. That's the only way we're going to move forward positively. Mm. All right. Thank you. Great answer. Great answer. Um, what made you want to run for the position of solicitor? Was it the Michael Slager trial or was there something else that made you want to go into that position? It's, Rajon, the, the issue of our time is racial inequity. That's the deal. It, it holds us back economically. It holds us back as a community, as a state, as a nation, when people don't have real opportunities to succeed. And there's no place in our entire governmental system where that inequity manifests itself in terms of a punitive effect, punishing individuals more and setting an entire family back than in a criminal justice system where there's not racial equity. Hmm. So I ran for this spot because nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else has done it. We need somebody to step up and actually do it. We need somebody who's a lawyer who understands systems and frankly, who has an outsider's perspective on data and how to gather the right data. We need a different perspective on, on the entire criminal justice system that isn't stuck in the weeds, but doesn't see the forest for the trees and understands that relationships are a huge part of this Absolutely. Um, equation. Um, and it's frankly, I'm a Democrat and this is a democratic district. And yeah. um, you know, racial equity is not a partisan issue. <laughs> Whether you're Republican or Democrat, nobody likes racism. Nobody likes institutional racism. Nobody likes racial bias, even when we don't know that we have it. Yeah. I say that as an individual who grew up as, I'm a white guy, right? But uh, if we're really gonna solve this problem, Republicans and Democrats together, we've gotta look at our blind spots. And if there's one fundamental question for people who look like me, it's, am I going to look at my own actions and really be determined to see my blind spots and change mm -hmm. those things? That's why the racial bias audit is such a huge part of it. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. And I know a few people just came in. A lot of the questions that y'all are asking, we already covered, so I don't want to double back. Um, you are definitely welcome to walk and watch back from the beginning, but I do not want to just ask them the same questions because we are limited on time. Um, I do want to ask this question. Though. I saw one that was very um, pertinent that we haven't discussed yet, and it was in reference to checks and balances. 
how can the solicitor's office um, provide a checks and balances to make sure that there are not um, racial inequities that are being taken place um, in terms of uh, in terms of yeah, every decision-making process. Yes, yeah, yes. Right, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We need African-American voices and opinions in every decision-making process. That specifically is key to our success in healing racial equity and ridding our justice system of racial bias because African-Americans have been hit by the criminal justice system inequities more than any other group. I mean, it's, it's just obvious. It's right there three to five times more likely to be arrested, depending on the charge up to 17 times more likely to be arrested. Uh, it's right there in our face. This is a huge problem. We've got to change it. And the main way to change it is to have people of color in on those decision-making processes. And not just people of color, but also people uh, just as a large group, African-Americans, Hispanic, Latinx, who have been underrepresented and, and sometimes prejudiced by our system, LGBTQ plus individuals, who uh, bear the burden of not having a hate crime law, which is something I'm in favor of. Uh -huh. uh, so there are a lot of steps, but have those decision makers be a part of it. The first part is to have African-American attorneys in the solicitor's office so that they have a voice in every decision. The other part is have community action teams. And of all places, the North Charleston Police Department is doing a really good job of this. We've got Chief Reggie Burgess over there. He not only has had the RECAP team, which I'm, I'm part of, RECAP is a community mm -hmm. policing organization. RECAP stands for Rebuilding Every Community Around Peace, uh, where we walk through the neighborhoods with the highest crime rates. <laughs> and sometimes it's a little strange for somebody who's experienced crime to go and say, hey, right, I'm going to walk later on a Thursday or Friday night. Right. And yeah. But they've got um, CompStat meetings where they invite people in. So you've got community members that listen to officers talk about who they're policing, what the statistics are, why they're policing those things, what trends they're seeing so that they can get that community input and they value that and so that they can be held accountable. Yeah, That's what we need. That's sort of like what our idea of a community action team would be so that we would meet on a weekly or biweekly basis and say, all right, here are the trials that we're having. The cases that we've selected to go to trial are not all against black defendants. They're a mix of people. Are we having a diversity of trial defendants that reflects our community as well? Why is it if it's not the case, what are we missing? What about jury selections? And the attorneys need to do that, but they can be accountable by going through those decision-making processes and looking at the data as close to real time as they possibly can with a community action team that then holds them accountable and that is open to the public where we publish these results. And we got to gather the data, gather the data, gather the data, and then gather the data some more to find out yeah. what data we're missing and to find out if we need some more accountability in, in one part of the process or another. Absolutely. Thank you for that, man. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to start to close this, this interview up. I want to thank you for your time. Um, I know there's a lot of things you could be doing. Um, no, this is great. But I really value this time and our community members need to have an election so that they know that they have input. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll leave it at this. I, I want you to make, first of all, let them know how they can, you know, find out more about you. If they're, if they're interested in finding more information, give them that information. And then I want you to make your, give your parting, giving your, your parting thoughts on, on this topic and, and anything we may have missed. Yeah. And one thing I, I forgot that uh, I didn't mention, we mentioned we, we really got a four point plan in terms of just addressing racial 
inequity right now and producing racial equity in the future. The, the first is making sure that we hire African-American attorneys so that we have diversity that reflects the community diversity. Uh, talked about making sure that we're not striking African-American jurors, especially not with proxies for racial bias, which we've seen in the past, um, whether it's somebody's clothing or whether um, we're letting them go because, oh, no, they have to work. But then what are we doing with the diversity on the jury? Uh, another part is having a racial bias audit. And then another key part of it, which you may not think is all that important, but is really important when you understand the dynamics of relationships, that's to have the solicitor's office have the prosecutors go into communities and be a part of community meetings so that they can listen to what's really going on, listen to what's happening in neighborhoods, in families, and what their challenges are and how we can do a better job of finding the root causes of crime and hopefully reducing that as well. Okay. Those are my four points I wanted to get to. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, and I'm on votevenpogue.com. We've got our racial equity initiative right there, Change Reform Equity. Uh, we're on Facebook, Vote Ben Pogue 2020, I think it is. Um, uh, we're also on Twitter, at Vote Ben Pogue, and I don't remember. I think Vote, Vote Ben Pogue on Instagram, although you don't get a whole lot from Instagram. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we're out there, and we're out there in the community. You see us all over the place, and, and that's a big part of this, too, is talking to folks and hearing, really listening to the voices that matter, making sure that they're a part of it. Um, and if I want to close real quick just with one uh, thing, there's a, an old saying that what you do for me without me, you do to me. And we've really got to keep that in mind. We didn't talk a lot about white privilege and about racial bias a ton, but um, finding out what our blind spots are. A good book on this is White Fragility. Another good book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. Those are really yes. good books. Um, but this isn't about me seeing my deficiencies and asking you to fix me. It's my job to fix me. So people who look like me have got to make their own special effort to make sure that we are aware of our privilege in the past. Historically, whether it's looking back at from Bacon's Rebellion to the Homestead Act to redlining practices to the expansion of the Supreme Court in terms of community rules and regulations, look at all that, find out what the blind spots are and find out why we need to change things so desperately, especially right now. That's our job as individuals, but the big, bigger part of that is to learn, but then listen. Listen on your terms, not on my terms. So not tell me what I need to do. I do what I need to do, then I go to you and I need to listen to the feedback. That's what we need Absolutely. to do. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for your Wait, energy. Um, like I said, I, I've known I've known you for a while. I think we first met last year. Yeah, um, you, came, you came to one of our events, and and we've we've sat down and we've spoken. Yeah. And I definitely um, I'm a fan of your work, man. And I I, I believe in, in the future that you, that you can provide um, in the position of solicitor. So I look forward to to, to hearing more from you. If you want to come back on uh, before as we get closer to November, you're de you definitely are welcome to do it, sir. Absolutely. Thanks so much, everyone. Right. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. With that, I'm going to close my show. Thank you so much to Ben Pogue, man. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for everything that you're doing and everything that you will do. And thank you, everybody who watched today. Um, I don't have my script pulled up, so I'm about to freestyle my ending. 
Thank you, everybody, who watched this week. I'm really excited about this week um, of episodes of the Local Celebrity Spotlight. I actually have three guests this week three and maybe a fourth it's really interesting um so tomorrow night i actually have the love life legacy podcast coming into the um coming on to the show excuse me i gotta make sure i move this that's, that's distracting me uh the love life legacy podcast um uh john and eva singleton they're coming on to talk about their podcast and how their podcast talks about love from from a different perspective from a perspective of marriage which is has been undervalued in a lot of ways in a lot of places so they're coming on to talk about marriage talk about love talk about all kinds of things podcast related um on thursday we're having a uh, former councilman uh Quajo campbell who's actually coming on he's gonna be talking about a rally that they're doing the blm a black agenda the blm a black agenda so they'll be talking about that and the way that they're pushing it forward that's going to make it different than the other protests and even the other rallies that have taken place locally um if you would like to come on and talk about what you're doing in the community please reach out to me on my website that's www.realtalkrejean.com that's www.realtalkrejean.com um in the meantime please stay up to date on what's going on real talk with Rajan by go follow me on social media all you have to do is go to any social media and type in real talk Rajan. uh please leave a review I need reviews. I need stars on my podcast. If you could please leave a star on my podcast, like five of them, um, I greatly appreciate it. And follow me on YouTube. I need more followers on YouTube as well. If y'all can do that, it'd be great. I am accepting um, hosting and event event hosting opportunities. So if you need a host for an event, reach out to me. Guess how you can get me? www.realtalkrajan.com. I think that's all I really want to say. Normally I say more stuff, but I can't remember it. And that's all right. I want to thank everybody again for watching. I want to thank Ben Pogue for coming on. Um, make sure you check him out. VoteBenPogue.com, www.VoteBenPogue.com. I want to shout out to my sponsors. Thank you to Signs2C.com. Make sure you go if you have any custom design needs, whether it be banners, T-shirts, cups, vehicle decals, go to www.Signs2C.com. And if you have a need, for uh, cybersecurity training, please go to www.cyberprepu.as.me. In closing, God is everything, and without him, we are nothing, so never forget where your help comes from. And if a man doesn't stand for something, he's bound to fall for anything. Now that is real talk. I will see y'all soon. Peace. Oh, I gotta share my screen.